Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Bill called his parents to wish them a happy New Year's. And his dad answered the phone. He said, Dad, what's your New Year's resolution? His dad said, well, son, it's to make your mother as happy as I can all year round. He goes, wow. His mom got on the phone a few minutes later and he said, Mom, what's your New Year's resolution? She said, to see that your dad keeps his New Year's resolution. (laughs) I, I honestly think... If each person in a couple made Bill's father's resolution and lived by it, I tell you, all of us that are in a marriage, marriage would be your happy spot if that were true. But let's face it, keeping New Year's resolutions is not an easy thing to do. Statistically, 68% of us have abandoned our New Year's resolutions by the second week of January, right? So uh, we, we don't make it very far. And uh, the number one resolution every New Year's, what is it? Lose weight, right? And Ann's already told me that's our New Year's resolution for uh, for the year. This woman walked into the bathroom uh, and she caught her husband standing on the scales and he was sucking in his stomach. And uh, the woman thought to herself, she said, man, he thinks that's going to make him weigh less. And so she rather sarcastically said to him, that's not going to help. And he said, oh, yes, it is. I can see the numbers this way. <laughs> In spite of how easy it is for us to forget the things that we're resolving to do, I want to tell you that I really do believe that making a, a resolve at this time of year is actually a really good thing for us to do, setting a, a new course direction for uh, our life. Every big change in our life, Listen, every big change in our life begins with one simple decision, something we decide to do, and and we do it. Last night I officiated at uh, Molly's wedding, Molly Pittman. Molly married Joel Blasiol. And uh, by the way, let me just say, I think she did really well. I think Joel's a great guy. I hope you all get get to know him. But that monumentous... Is that how you say it? Momentous? That momentous life change began with a simple decision to go on a, on a first date. So I think it's good for us to step back at times and look at our lives and, and maybe say, what, what do I need to resolve to change in this year? So with that in mind, I want to challenge us today. I want to challenge us to be a sailboat and not an airplane. Now, this is a metaphor. By the way, if you missed Micah's thing about being fragile as an instrument, that was a metaphor too, okay? But this is a metaphor, and I know it's going to fall short, but I I do believe that too often we live our lives as airplanes, and I want to challenge us to be a sailboat. Here's what I mean by that. When I say we live like airplanes, what I mean is we set our lives on autopilot, and we just do life without thinking about it. So on autopilot, where we, we maybe got, maybe we don't we probably don't even have a destination in mind, but just life's on autopilot. We just do the same thing day after day in, instead of seeking to live on purpose, instead of seeking to live in such a way that we actually 
accomplish, something that we want to accomplish in our life. And so we don't step outside of our comfort zones. We don't do anything that's not just in the regular program of this is what I'm doing today. On the other hand, if we were to live like a sailboat, right, there's no real autopilot. I went to dinner one night this week with Chuck and Chris. Ann and I did, and I asked, you know, he's a, he's a sailor. I said, is there an autopilot in sailboats? He goes, yeah. So uh, kind of blows my metaphor, but it's a different kind of autopilot, right? It's, you have to set the sails for your destination. You have to tack with the wind. After you've done all these things, then you can set maybe an autopilot, but you've got to constantly be changing it, right? You can't just set it and, and leave it, right? You need to tack this way and that way with the wind. You need to go around obstacles, but you can do it. If you've ever watched the America's Cup, the sailing race, I'm telling you, those men that are on those boats, they are working hard every single minute to make that sailboat go where they want it to go. So I have a destination in mind for 2023, uh, but it won't be easy. And you must decide, hey, this is worth the trip. It's worth uh, the effort. I'm willing not to let my life be on on autopilot. Now, there's lots of ways that the Bible describes the destination that God has, I think, for us. But this morning, I'm going to use Romans chapter 12 as a description of the destination that I want you to chart a course to on your sailboat this this coming year. Now, one more thing before we begin to look at the destination. I could have made this a personal exhortation. I could have been saying to each of you individually, Mike, Michael, I could be saying to you, Michael, this is the course I want you personally to set. Or you, Nathan, or Mike, or any one of you, right? But I decided I didn't want to do that. I want to challenge us as a family. I want to challenge us as a church to set this course destination, okay? Yeah, I'm going to diverge from, uh, diverge from my notes just a little bit and just tell you, I mean, this has been kind of a tough uh, holiday season for me. I mean, I felt really stressed because of the power not being there, trying to get it on, all this stuff that I didn't need to take on, but I did nonetheless. And so I got to tell you all, you being here this morning and filling up the chairs, it's meant a lot to me as 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 one of your pastors for you being here today. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Um, I want to set this course dis- destination for us as a church. Now, having said that, our church family is made up of you individuals, right? I mean, we're a corporate body of believers, but it's, it's made up of each one of you individually. So even though I'm asking us to set this course direction as a church family, I'm asking you to set it personally, too. Does that make sense? I'm really directing this to us as a church, but but it, it applies to each one of you individually. Okay, so with all that out of the way, let me chart our course. Here's the first this, here's the first descriptive part of that destination. Let's set our sails for a place of holiness. Now, I didn't really want to use the word holiness because it's so churchy and so religious, and we use it a lot, but we don't necessarily know what it means. And this is a rhetorical question, but do you know what it means? Here's what it means. It was a rhetorical question. That's all right. All of you that don't know what rhetorical means, it means don't answer, just think in your head. Did you get that, huh? I'm just kidding, everyone. I'm just kidding. Um, It means to be different. It means to be set apart. 
That's all it means. I mean, you know, we, we attach a lot to it, but it means to be different. And so I'm asking our church family to set our sails for a place of difference, for a place, if you would, a destination of distinction. Let's look at Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, the Jews were set apart by God from their culture, from everyone else around them. They were set apart by the minutia of 613 laws that God gave them. They were set apart by food laws, what they ate. They were set apart by dress laws, how they dressed. They were set apart by tattoo laws, what they didn't draw on their bodies. Uh, These things were to make them different than the culture around them. We're to be set apart too. We're to be different than our culture around us. It doesn't matter what other Americans do. We're not other Americans. You understand that? When my kids were little, and I I got my son here. Uh, Thanks for coming, by the way. Good to have you today. All my other ones have abandoned me. Only Caleb's. But uh, so when my children were little, I would say to them, it doesn't matter what others do. You are acres. You know, you are acres. And, and what I meant by that was it doesn't matter what everybody else lets their kids do. You're my kids. We're acres. We do things this way. Are we that different than culture around us? I, I re, you know, I'll be honest with you, Caleb and, and Ann. I, uh, I, I looked at our family and I said, man, are the acres all that different than our culture around us? Now, in these verses, he doesn't describe the difference, okay? He doesn't, he doesn't talk about the difference in these first verses. Um, we're going to talk about that. He's going to talk about that, I think, through the rest of the chapter. But what he does say in these opening verses is that there's supposed to be a marked disparity between us and the culture around us. We all recognize an Orthodox Jew, right? If an Orthodox Jew walked in here, you would recognize him. You would know immediately, oh, that's an Orthodox Jew. If a conservative Muslim walked in here, you'd say, oh, that's a conservative Muslim. If uh, someone from the Amish or the Mennonite vein walked in here, chances are we would recognize them as being Amish or Mennonite. Why is that? What sets them apart? Well, it's their clothing, their hairstyles, uh, whether they use modern conveniences or not. But believe it or not, it's not our clothing. I don't think it's it was the clothing for the Jews, but I don't think it's clothing for us that sets us apart. I don't think it's hairstyle that sets us apart. I don't think it's even whether we use modern conveniences or not that is to set us apart. We'll look at the difference in just a little bit. But but first, what I want you to notice in these verses, and again, this is not going to be a deep dive on Romans 12, but what I do want you to notice in these opening verses is that he says, being different will demand sacrifice. Did you see that? He says, this is your spiritual sacrifice of worship. So being different 
is going to require sacrifice on our behalf as a church family. Okay, And uh, it's going to involve, according to these verses, it's going to involve changing the way you think. Jesus taught us to live radically different than other folks, and he taught us to think radically different than others. And so I'm asking you, are you willing in 2023 as a church, as a family, to chart a course? Are you individually willing to chart a course that's going to make you different than other Americans around you? Others should be able to see that difference. And are you willing to make a sacrifice to be different? Are you willing to pay the price to change the way you think and the way you act? Now, we talked about a Bible reading plan. And and again, in in this text, uh, I'm off my notes here, but in this text it says... uh, not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He doesn't say how to renew your mind, but we renew our minds by God's Word, right? So all of us ought to be reading our Bibles. And if you're not reading your Bible, then let me appeal to you, encourage you to pull in the, pull in the sail a little bit and, and chart a course of reading your Bible to change your mind so that you will end up looking different and being different than other Americans around you. Number two, description of this place that we're charting a course for in this year. The place we set sail for today is a place of service. Look at verse three. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in the Messiah, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them in prophecy, in proportion to our faith, in service, in our serving, in one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, to the one who contributes, in his generosity, to the one who leads with zeal, to the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, I honestly think that the main point of verses 3 through 8 is Paul trying to say to us that we all have different gifts and abilities. And and some of our gifts are going to be more visible. Some of our gifts are going to be more out front. And I think he's really, really challenging us here that we're not to think more highly of ourselves based on what our gifts are. I really think this is a call to humility. He says, basically, you all have been given different gifts by God. Serve with the proportion and serve with the gift that you've been given. Serve with humility. No pride and self-importance. Don't don't think you're better than someone else because you have more visible gifts or you have upfront gifts as opposed to maybe service gifts that are behind the scenes. He's basically, I think, pointing to us to humility in our giftedness. However, Having said that, the the point I want to underscore in these verses is that we have to set sail. Listen, we have to set sail to a place of using our gifts and serving the church and serving the body of Christ. I, I may I hope I haven't done it in this context. I've done it in several contexts. But, you know, when I think of serving, uh, I, I think of Lou Jones and I don't want to embarrass him, but I've told several several contexts this this. I found a letter from Barbara recently. Barbara was for those of you that may not know. Barbara died 10 years ago. Lou, it's, it's been that long. How many? Wow. 15 years ago. But Lou and Barbara came to Jesus about the same time. And uh, and Lou just became this this. 
I mean, it was just part of his DNA as a believer to serve. And I got a letter from Barbara, not so happy letter, basically saying, will you tell Lou not to serve so much up at church? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, Barbara, you know, she would, she'd be pleased, I think, Lou, to see how you have not less served but grown in, in your service. All of us need, I want you to, I want us as a church to set our sails to, 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 to tack with the wind, to be a church of service where we serve. In 1987, when I came here, it was the young 20-somethings and 30-somethings that just took the ministry reins and they began to serve. And they thought up new ministries. They created ministries. They taught the children. They developed, we developed dramas. I say we because I was a part of them, but it was other people thinking these things up and doing these things. And we sought to disciple others. Our family needs you young adult believers to set your sails to serve the body of Christ to serve the church. We need you 20s and 30-somethings to do that. When I came here um, all those years ago, the senior adults, many of them, not all of them, but many of the senior adults at the time said, basically, before I got here said this, but after I got here continued to say it, we've served. We've done our bit. It's time for someone else to do it, right? And, and they would sit back like this and let the young people serve. I kind of get the feeling sometimes us older folks now, because I'm in that side of things now, you know, we we think we've done with our service. I want to say hooey on that. That's not a curse word, is it? (laughs) (laughs) Hooey on that. Nonsense to that. Senior adults. Listen, there is no retirement in serving the body of Christ. Now, maybe your service needs to change and maybe your place of ministry needs to be different. But there's no such thing as not serving. I just caught Beverly's eye. You know, when Beverly retired earlier this past year, last year, (laughs) when she retired back in April, she came to me and she said, Jimmy, I'm retiring, but I'm not retiring from serving and I'm still going to serve. And I mean, you know, for a while there, she was serving almost as much as she was as our secretary. She did not quit serving and has not quit serving. In fact, texted me last night, said, Jimmy, what, what do I need to do tomorrow morning to help us get ready? So, so we're different. We believe that serving each other is the destination that the body of Christ needs to head towards. And so therefore, we are all, whether young or old, we're just all invested in, in setting our sails for service. And I'm challenging you to do that in this new year. Number three, our sailing destination in 2023 should be loving one another in the kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom. Look at verse 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Remember, I said that our destination is going to make us different. Embrace it, everyone. Embrace it. We're not like other Americans. We are followers of Jesus. We belong to a different kingdom. We follow a different king. We are not 
We are not other Americans. And, and that means, that difference is that we love one another. And so Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And I know I'm going to get in trouble with this and some of you are going to, you're going to push back and it's okay, I don't care. But it is really not our doctrine that makes us, marks us as believers according to everything Jesus says. Jesus says it's our love that's going to mark us as his disciple. So you're going to have all your doctrine right and not love and I'm telling you, you're not marked as one of his followers. You have, you and I have got to love one another. And then he talks what it looks like. So this is real quickly. He says your love must be genuine. No pretending, everyone. Choose it. Be real about it. Okay. He goes on. He says, he says, let your love, uh, let, he says, love one another with affection. Affection means feelings from the heart. Now I'm one of those who believes this. I believe that your affections follow your actions. I believe that what you feel follows what you do. Okay, so you have to do some things sometimes, whether you feel like it or not. And then as you do them, then your your affections begin to follow suit uh, with that. I think he says, let your love be genuine, act it out. And then he says, let it also be from your heart. Let it be an affection. There's, we, we, listen, we love one another by serving one another by all the things that I'm going to share with you that Paul says, but, but we genuinely have affection for one another. You say, well, I don't love these people. You know, I just come here. I don't love these people. Well, let me tell you something. Begin to serve them. Begin to love them in action. And all of a sudden, you're going to really love them from your heart. He says, love one another by seeking to outdo each other in showing honor. The idea here is preferring others is more important than yourself, looking out for the interest of others. I think we could say loving others is by valuing them. And uh, how, how, how do we do that? How do we, sh- how do we value others? And show, how do we outdo one another in showing honor? I, you know, I might be wrong, and I know this is my love language. Y'all know that it is. But I'm telling you, words of appreciation and words of encouragement and affirmation are a great way for us to show honor to each other. When was the last time you sat down and for no reason wrote somebody in this family a note that you were blessed by them for this, that, or that? When was the last time you did that? Why don't we do that all the time? We don't think about it. We're too selfish. We're too self-focused. That's why we don't think about it. So maybe we need to use electronics and and, and make yourself a reminder note once a week. Write somebody a note of encouragement that has encouraged you. Maybe we need to do stuff like that, right? He goes on, he says, to love one another, he says, is to help meet each other's needs. My surplus in finances isn't for me to build bigger barns. It's It's to help you when you have a need. That's what it says. My surplus is to help you when you have a need, and your surplus is to help me and to help each other when, when others have needs and you have surplus. He says, show hospitality. Love is hospitality. Man, how I wish in 2023 we would, we would trim the sails and tap the sailboat into the winds of hospitality. What if we opened our homes to one another in 2023? What if you took the dinner table as a place of getting to know the folks sitting around you that you don't know? 
Uh, Ann and I use our dinner table a lot, but one of the things I, I've noticed is it's, it's a lot of you that have been in my life for 30 years, and, and you know, what if we used our tables to invite somebody we don't know over very, we don't know very well, invite them over so they come as an acquaintance, believe as a friend. Yeah, you get what I'm saying? You know what I've discovered on social media? Micah, you don't have to listen. But uh, I've discovered one thing on social media that I love. It's called, uh, Ann says it's Pinterest. I've never been on Pinterest in my life. But it's, it's on the other social media platforms. It's these awesome recipes that people put out there. And they, they show this dish, and it's just, man, it's incredible. And then they show you how they make it. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. And I have sent Ann probably 50 of those and said, can we try this? And, you know, to her credit, she's not done one of them. <laughs> she goes on Pinterest and finds her own. But that's not fair. I mean, these are the ones that I want to try. So for home group a few weeks ago, I made one of them for home group that I really liked. Here's my point. I'm telling you, ladies, gentlemen, man, we could go on social media, find some great dish, make it for the first time, invite somebody over to share it with you. And if it bombs, you can all laugh over it, right? I mean, you get my point. I'm being a little bit humorous, but I'm basically trying to say, this is not me, this is, this is Paul. Let me go back and read it to you. Contribute to the needs of the saints seek and seek to show hospitality. And I imagine that Paul has maybe something even greater in mind when he talks about hospitality, because there, there's no Red Roof Inns and no Hampton Inns down the road, right? I, I think it was more of a hospitality, opening your home to believers coming through so they can stay with you. I think it was bigger. And, and maybe we don't have that need as much, but boy, we can sure open our homes to hospitality with meals with one another. I'd encourage you to do that. Let me move on. i got two more. Let's make our church destination this year a life of zeal. In the middle of that, verse 11 and 12, it's funny, in prayer meeting this morning, Jill, Jill pulled this verses, these two verses out as meaning so much to her. But this is what it says. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Whenever I see the word zeal, I think of one episode in the Bible. What is it? Not a rhetorical question. What is it when I think of zeal in the Bible? Anybody anybody think of it? Doggone it. I gave you the wrong one rhetorically, right? Do you remember when Jesus cleans out the, the money changers in the temple? Do you remember what the Bible says about him as to why he did that? It says the zeal for God's house motivated him to do that. The zeal for the temple did that. I honestly think it would be fair to say zeal for God consumed Jesus. And I want to say to all of us this morning, sailing's hard work. It takes, it takes effort. Like I, like I pointed to that race, right? It takes effort. Zeal is what you need if you're going to be a good sailor. Beloved, what if we, the church... Our church family had zeal for God's house. Now, God's house isn't this gym. It's not that place over there. It's none of these facilities. You are God's house. I am God's house. We are God's house. What if we had zeal for the house of God? What if we had zeal for each other? What what if we had zeal for Jesus' name? What if we had zeal for Jesus' kingdom? What if we had zeal for His honor? I ask myself this question, is zeal an emotion that I can control or that I can't control or just something that happens to me or is zeal something I choose? 
Which is it? It's something you choose. You know how I know that? Because he says, be zealous in, in heart. In other words, Paul said that. He didn't say, hey man, pray that God would make you zealous for the kingdom of God. No, he says, be zealous for the kingdom of God. That must imply that this is something you and I can choose to be fervent in heart. Look at the the zeal. Be be zealous for the Lord. Uh, Serve the Lord with zeal. Rejoice. I think our zeal leads us to rejoice in hope, to choose joy. This is in my notes, but I want to share it anyway. This morning I was at prayer meeting. There wasn't, there, we, there was just a few of us there, and, and I was complaining. And Brother Clarence, where are you, Clarence? You in here? Clarence was here. But Clarence sat in that room, and everything negative that I said, Clarence came back. Oh, but Jaman, and he had a positive thing to say. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, it didn't happen once. It happened like four or five times. And I said, Clarence, be quiet. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I was convicted. Clarence was Clarence was right. You know, uh, I, I mean, this is the message I preached a few weeks ago. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in your tribulation. Be constant in your prayer. Let zeal. Be zealous for those things. Last, finally, let let's be a church that sets a course to love others outside the kingdom including our enemies. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought uh, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now Jesus told us, he said, listen everyone, everybody's going to know you're my disciples by your love one for another. And that I know of, Jesus by his own words never said, people will know you're my disciples because you love people who don't love you or you love people outside the kingdom. I don't know that Jesus ever said those specific words. But but I believe it's equally clear in the scriptures that we are going to be known, not just because we love each other, but because we love people who don't love us. We don't hate our enemies. We love our enemies. Albert Einstein, uh, we all know who he is, probably the greatest mathematician, the greatest whatever whatever Albert Einstein was. Um, what am I looking for? A scientist. Um, he was a Jew. And he was an atheist. Time magazine ran this quote from Albert Einstein. Now, now in all fairness, I do want to say that people on the other side have pushed back and said Albert Einstein didn't say this. But I think the evidence is that Albert did say this. But here's what he said. And I quote, being a lover of freedom, when the revolution came to Germany, I looked to the universities to defend it, knowing that they had always boasted of their devotion to the cause of truth. 
But no, the universities immediately were silenced. Then I looked to the great editors of the newspapers whose flaming editorials in days gone by had proclaimed their love of freedom, but they, like the universities, were silenced in a few short weeks. Only the church stood squarely across the path of Hitler's campaign for the suppression of truth. I never had any special interest in the church before, but now I feel a great affection and admiration because the church alone has had the courage and the persistence to stand for intellectual truth and moral freedom. I am forced thus to confess that what I once despised, I now praise unreservedly. I told you a few weeks ago about a church, I think it's out in California, but I don't actually remember the state, but how they partnered with a festival for years and years and years. And then one year they took a stand in their preaching for biblical marriage and the the backlash against the festival became so great because they were partnering with this church that the festival disowned the church and said, we didn't know they stood there and they disowned them, right? And the church, the pastors of the church, said to the church, we are not going to respond with hatred and with spite or in kind. We are going to love them. And they loved them back. And, uh, and the leaders of the festival came to these pastors in private and said, why did you do this? Why, why have you treated us like this? And I'm paraphrasing, but basically their answer was, we follow the one who was despised by others, and he told us to love other people. And so therefore, we're just following his example. Micah, your testimony last night, I mean last Sunday, just blessed me to no no end. If you weren't here, Micah, basically one of the verses in this passage that we're looking at, he said, "I, I never saw it applying outside the church. But I see that now. That, that really blessed me. How we treat others outside the church, I think, is just as important. I'm not going to say it's more important because the, the words Jesus used was they know us by how we love one another. But I think it's so important to God. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount said this to us, his followers. He said, you heard it said, love your brothers. I say to you, and hate your enemies, I say to you, love your enemies. What? Here, here it is. Remember I told you that we'd look different and that the destination for 2023 is to be different? To look different? Here it is. This is the difference. This is what people see that makes us look different than, than them. It's that we love our culture we, we, excuse me, we love other people around us where in our culture they don't. If you're not for me, you're against me and I hate you and I disdain you with my words and I disdain you with my attitude. We're to be different than that. Look at the specifics of loving others. Verse 14, we bless those who are against us. We don't curse them. How different is that than Americans around us? Wouldn't we stand out, guys, if we didn't curse people that don't agree with us, that don't share our worldview, that don't share our politics, that don't share our view of marriage or the importance of life and the value of life? What if we didn't curse them? And again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying we don't stand for truth. We stand for truth, whatever it cost us. What I'm saying is what if our attitude was not one of cursing them, but rather blessing them? And those are not my words. Those are Paul's words to the church at Rome. 
The key to blessing and not cursing is forgiveness. Would you think that might be true? I think it is. And I can't help but think of Martin Luther King's statement on forgiveness. Listen, listen, this, I don't think you can improve on this. Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. Again, that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that. I'm with Martin Luther King here. But he goes on. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. So it's not accepting people's wrongness in some way and declaring it right. But it is keeping myself open in relationship to them so that I can speak into their lives. But if I curse them, it's not going to happen. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. What if we loved others by multiplying their joys and dividing their griefs? And I'm not talking about, you should do that. It's a given. We should do that for each other, right? When, when, when Shep died, you, you divided my grief by carrying by carrying me, your, your grief divided my grief. And there's been all opportunities where we've done that for each other. You didn't just do it for me. And we've multiplied each other's joys by being filled with joy when someone else has something joyous. But what if we looked outside of ourselves to our neighbors and people around us and we multiplied their joys and divided their griefs? And you say, what do you mean? I mean, what if we wrote notes to grieving people and we said, I'm grieving with you. Now, I've got to be honest with you, it didn't, it didn't mean as much when people I didn't know wrote me and said, I'm grieving with you, but it did mean something to me. It meant more when, when you with your tears came and grieved with me. That meant the most, right? That meant the most. But, but it did mean something. Even when people I didn't know said, I'm grieving with you. And, and so we can do that for people. What if we took food to people that are grieving? Or what if we, when people have joyful times, what if we found ways to, and I'm not talking about people you don't even know, I'm talking about your neighbors. I'm really talking about people that are not in the kingdom, or what, maybe even our enemies. What if we did that to people that disdain us or have treated us poorly or wrongly? What about that? Wow. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own, uh, in your own sight. Loving others outside the kingdom is that we never see ourselves better than them. We never see ourselves as more loved of God, more important to God, but we're willing to serve the least of them is what is what Paul tells us to do. It's never seeing yourself as smarter than others, better than others, your talents and your gifts and abilities making you somehow more awesome to God. You're not more awesome to God. God's gifted you that you might love people the, the, the world of Downton Abbey is gone. Thank God for that, right? Thank God for that. If you haven't watched Downton Abbey, you don't know what I'm talking about. There's the upstairs and the downstairs. And if you're born in the upstairs, if you're born in the upstairs, you're better than people in the downstairs, right? And um, I think sometimes we as Christians, we, we kind of have this upstairs-downstairs mentality. We're the upstairs people because we belong to Jesus, right? They're the downstairs people. Now, they can come up if they follow Jesus, but, but we're up, they're down. That's not true, everyone. It's not true. Let's set our sails to humbly love others no matter who they are. Look at, look at, he says next, do not repay evil with evil. This is so hard, isn't it? When, when people hurt us, the, the natural reaction is to hurt them back. 
And I don't necessarily mean you're going to curse them necessarily, but you might withdraw from them. You won't forgive them. You close down on them. That's what other Americans do. That's not what we do. That's not what we do. No matter what they do, we should do what is right, what is honorable. Don't avenge yourself. We let God take care of that. We do just the opposite. We do good to those who have done wrong wrong to us. Look at what he says. He says we are to heap coals on their head. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, you know, here's where 2,000 years removed from the context of the New Testament, this is where it makes a difference. We don't really know exactly what coals, reaping coals on their head means. People have made these suggestions. Some have said it means it's, the coals represent judgment, fire, right? So what we're doing when we do good to those who do bad to us, when we do good to them, man, we're making it that much hotter at judgment day for them. I mean, I think that's so opposite the point that Paul's trying to make. I don't think that's right. Others have said the coals represent shame. And so therefore, when I do good to them, I'm making them feel shame for what they've done to me. And the goal there is for them to repent, right? They feel the shame, they repent. But still another suggestion is, and I'm, I'm sure this has some cultural context for it having ever been pre, uh, presented, but it was the idea that your fireplace was everything. Remember we had matches. Nobody had matches. Nobody had gasoline. And so you kind of kept your fire going. We, Ann and I heat with, with uh, wood. And my goal every morning is to have some coals in there so I don't have to start the fire again. That's my goal every morning. And uh, so, But if your fire went out, you know, you, you don't have lighter fluid and, 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 you know, it's hard. So you'd go to your neighbor and say, hey, can I have a few of your coals to start my fire back? And, and so people have suggested that the, the, the coals on their head was maybe how they carried the coals. And that was, that was you did something good for someone else. You're giving them coals for their, their fire. Putting coals in the container was a way of saying you're benefiting them. You're blessing them. Whatever Paul meant exactly, I think the idea is that blessing your enemy is not seeking vengeance. And, and when you bless them in a positive way... You're doing something good for them. And so Paul ends this section. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the point. Whatever the coals mean, he's basically saying, do good. Bless them. Don't curse them. Bless them. Do good for them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. If they're hungry, feed them. Right? Because you're going to do something good with that. Do not overcome. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with doing good. Again, Martin Luther King. And, and this, I think he captures this thought. Here's what he says. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. I think that's Paul's point. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So we are to not, not attack our enemies with hate. We're to love them so that they might come to know Jesus and and might be changed. Let's be fair, though. Let's be fair. Not all of our enemies are going to be changed by our love. Enemies, some of them are going to hate us forever. And so he says in verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So let me review the destination real quickly. Here's the destination I'm asking us to set sail to as a church. And, And by extension, I'm asking you to set your sails for individually. It's a life of difference. It's a a life of distinction. It's being different than everyone around you. It's a life of service, serving one another, serving others. 
It's a life of loving our family, loving the family of God. It's a life of zeal. It's a life of, of being all in. This is where the autopilot metaphor, it's t- turning autopilot off and living with zeal to be the, to, to tack the winds and, 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 and sail around the obstacles just as hard and as well as I can. It's a life of loving all others, even our enemies. And so I ask you rhetorically, would you set your sails with me? And then I ask you, where do you need to trim your sails? So listen, are you afraid of being different? Are you afraid of standing out? You know, looking different, people thinking you're weird because you follow Jesus. Are you afraid of that? If if you are, then this is the price we pay. This is the price we pay by not following everyone around us and being like them. So do you need to trim your sails there? Do you need to change your thinking? Do you need to start picking up your Bible and reading it more consistently so that God can change your thinking? Are you serving the kingdom? What, what are your gifts? Do you know your gifts? What are you, how are you using your gifts? Are you using your gifts? Are you merely a taker? I mean, we're supposed to be a server, not a taker. So do you need to trim your sails there some this year? Or are you, do you love the church family? Have you preferred others is more important than yourselves? Are you doing that? When was the last time you expressed honor to someone? Do you need to trim your sails in that area? When was the last time you invited someone over to your home? Used your, used your family table to, to get to know them, love them, honor them. What about zeal? Would you say you're zealous for Jesus' kingdom? Seriously. I mean, evaluate yourself honestly and say, when people, when people think of me, do they think of me as zealous for the kingdom of God? Do they think of me as, as prioritizing Jesus and his kingdom? Or do they think of me as zealous for something else? You know, I, I, I can, a lot of times I can look at people and say, man, they are super zealous for that, right? Nothing wrong with being zealous for something else, right? But, but man, I think whatever we're zealous for over here, it ought to be at least counterbalanced with our zeal for God, right? And zeal, our zeal for his kingdom. So, you know, do, do you need to, um, do you need to set your sails to catch the winds of zeal in this new year? Or are you a kingdom slug? Do you despise people that are different than you? How do you feel about people who have a different worldview than you? Where do you and I, and this is as much for Jimmy as it is for you, where do you and I need to trim our sails to catch the winds better, to make it to our destination in 2023 in a way maybe like we never have made progress before? That's, that's my challenge for us as a church. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.